Right, here we start. My name is Atar Sen. I'm the director of the Asia Research Center. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome two journalists who have worked in China for a long period, Mr. Juan Pablo Cardenal and Alberto Arujo, who are going to talk about China's silent army. It may not be silent, but it's certainly huge. So I, I, I leave Juan to say what, what the order of events is. Hello? Okay. Uh, thank you, first of all, for all of you for being here. Um, it's an honor to be in such a prestigious uh, institution with uh, such an audience. I want to thank, in the first place, Professor Hussein for chairing and, and hosting uh, this event. Thanks, Professor, very much. And uh, to all the Penguin team, Karen, for, for organizing not only this event, but also all our media interviews. We are here to, to introduce Thailand's Silent Army. The book probably approaches, sorry, let me tell you first uh, how we're going to arrange this, uh, this um, lecture. Uh, I'm going to be doing like a 15-minute uh, presentation on, to give a bird view uh, picture of what we've been doing in the last, uh, during the two years of our research. After that, uh, we're going to pass a, a five to six-minute uh, video uh, along our uh, during our trip, uh, we, we we took some images and photographs, and it's a homemade video, but I think it's very interesting, uh, and you will have a very nice idea what we've been doing uh, during those uh, during those two years in those uh, 25 countries. And when I'm f when we are finished with that, Heriberto will will do uh, also a 15-minute presentation on on looking into specific examples and case studies and looking also in, into the conclusions that we, ha that we have after our research. And, of course, after that, we go on, on Q&As and, and debating on this uh, uh, issue that is uh, one of the most fascinating uh, topics these days in the world. As I was saying, um, let me introduce the book, China's Silent Army, which approaches one of the hottest issues in the world today, China's rise and its eruption in, in the international stage. The objective of this uh, investigation was to go to 25 countries to understand and describe how is China becoming a global power. I think it's the first journalistic field research ever done on this topic at this scale. Let me tell you why we believe this book is important or this research is important. First of all, because China's international expansion uh, is not very well known. Uh, I would argue that it has to do with the discretion, the discrete nature of the Chinese people. I would add uh, it has to do with the opaque nature of the Chinese political system and also to the fact that this economic expansion comes with the silence of money. The second reason why I think um, this, uh, this book is important is because of the global importance of the phenomenon. China is changing the world, it's changing international trade, it's changing economy, our, our economies, our lives, international politics, everything. Uh, just to give you a, a figure to, to back what I just said, uh, China entered the WTO in 2001, and one decade later, um, trade, China's trade with the rest of the world had increased six times, and it reached three trillion U.S. dollars. 
The third reason why I think the book is important is because it fills, it fills a gap by giving voice to the local populations. When Heriberto and I, we were sharing office in Beijing when we got started, and we realized that uh, almost on a daily basis, we were seeing small pieces of information on a China loan here, a China investment there, and there was always the same pattern on, on the news. One thing is uh, a huge figure. The other thing, this uh, win-win situation rhetoric by the authorities of China or the authorities in the recipient countries. But there was no information whatsoever on what was happening on the ground. So the purpose of this book was to go on the ground, see it with our own eyes, and give voice to all those people that should be either uh, benefiting or suffering because of Chinese presence. The field research, as I said, was a field research in 25 countries in the developing world, Africa, Latin America, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and a taste of the Middle East. We went to the developing world not only because China's footprint there is more visible than any other places, but also because that's the place where China is securing its future supplies of natural resources. The adventure included um, jumping in 80 planes, 235,000 kilometers, 11 land borders, and two years of full dedication. We interviewed more than 500 people inside and outside China, everyone that had a say on what we were looking into. Politicians, businessmen, workers, diplomats, scholars, activists, journalists, etc. The purpose of this field research, we didn't want, it was not um, doing an anecdotic uh, field research. We wanted to, to, that the scope of the research was big enough to capture the behavior t patterns across the planet. In respect of what we've seen, um, I, I, ha I have to explain in the very beginning that there's two faces to Chinese uh, engagement with the rest of the world. One is uh, uh, a level of uh, ch uh, private Chinese investments. Uh, uh, an army, allow me the word, of small entrepreneurs and businessmen and migrant workers which are going everywhere in the developing world. We've seen them in very remote areas conquering um, impossible markets and they are doing so in industries such as textile, retail, construction services, agriculture, etc. And they do so thanks to the attributes that are common to the Chinese people. Sharp business sense, readiness to sacrifice, talent to put costs down, adaptation to the environment, and of course this uh, web of uh, intra-Chinese uh, contacts. On the other hand, the second phase is official China. Uh, of course, the driver of this uh, expansion is the hand of natural resources, which are strategic and key for China's uh, development. Um, and what, what, we've, what we, we did is, just to give you some examples, we were in the oil wells of Sudan, in the uh, jade mining, uh, in the jade mines in, uh, in Burma, in the iron, mines, iron ore mines in Peru, in the gas fields in the Turkmenistan desert, and we went to the heart of the African reserves of copper and cobalt in Congo and uh, Zambia, or to the forests uh, in Siberia, where one of the most important um, ecosystems is now one of the most endangered. What did we find? Basically, despite uh, some setbacks, is that China is succeeding. China is everywhere, and 
the reason why China is succeeding is, is we've, we've, the conclusion that we have is that there's three reasons for it. One very important in this context of uh, current crisis is that China's uh, almost unlimited financial resources. Um, from 2005 to 2012, China invested abroad uh, 600, 600 billion U.S. dollars, including construction projects. And, um, but on top of that, it's not only about investment. Investment is relatively low, uh, but it's very important, the loans. Um, China became the banker of the world in the period 2009-2010, overtaking uh, the World Bank by granting to other countries 110 billion U.S. dollars. And to give you another example, it, uh, the China Development Bank granted in the last few years 40 billion U.S. dollars to Venezuela only. The second reason why China is succeeding is because China is putting on the table infrastructure, which is very much needed in the developing world. And it's their infrastructure projects a la carte, meaning that they are willing to finance them they are willing uh, to go on the construction phase, and if, if um, Chinese labor force is needed, they are ready to supply it. China is building more than 300 dams across the, across the world, and probably the, the country that we've been to where, where we could see that more clearly is Angola, where after 27 years of war uh, and a country completely destroyed, China is building almost from scratch uh, roads, railways, housing, and hospitals. As one uh, minister in Zambia put it to us, he said, if I don't build a road, I don't get re-elected. If I do so, I'm a hero. That's the perception of how important infrastructures are in the developing world. The third and final reason why we believe China is succeeding has to do with the political alliances that China is uh, building up with countries that are, in a way, confronted with the West. The best example of it, and we were also in that country, is Iran. In the context of the international sanctions, uh, because of uh, Iran's nuclear program, China has managed to support those sanctions, although not unconditionally, and only after watering them down. So for, on the face of the, of the Western countries and the EU, uh, UN, China is pleasing Washington and is pleasing the international community by giving its vote to try to stop Iran's nuclear program. On the other hand, it's offering itself to, to, to Tehran as a diplomatic ally because, as I said, they are watering, them, watering those, those sanctions down and also as a, as a business partner ready to invest and give loans for Iran's um, uh, oil industry. As a result of all of this, what we saw in our research is that China has overtaken its, its competitors in Iran, which is the third oil producer in the world, and has become the main and most important player in Iran's oil industry. I want to say that official, official China's approach and strategy in the developing world is completely legit, legitimate and all the good things that China is doing in the, in the developing world cannot be minimized. I insist, they cannot be minimized. Many countries have been able to navigate across um, the, the crisis thanks to Chinese demand 
on natural resources. And those, the GDPs of those, of those countries have been very much impacted by Chinese demand. Also, uh, Chinese infrastructure and Chinese financing has been key for many of those countries. However, this strategy comes with side effects. Corruption and other, and other bad business practices, no transparency, engagement with the elites only are, are just a few, but probably most important are the low social, environmental, and labor standards. In a way, China is succeeding in exporting its model. And we, we believe that the fact that there's no checks and balances in China and in many of the countries in the developing world, meaning weak rule of law, uh, weak um, institutions, and no civil society, many times fuels um, the suffering of the weakest of all. I think that uh, one of the big contributions of this book is that we went to talk to all those people, as I was mentioning before, and we gave them voice. Best example of what I'm just saying could be probably Zambia, which is um, the country that has been always highlighted as the best example of uh, Sino-African cooperation. China has been investing in Zambia heavily in the last few years. Uh, and surprisingly enough, when we were in the Copper Belt area, we found that many, uh, many people, many people, I mean, I talk, I'm not talking about the elites, I'm talking about the people, were uh, not very, very welcome and not very happy with the Chinese presence. The, the reason for it was uh, the very poor labor conditions that uh, most of the Chinese companies in the mining, se mining sector are giving. According to sources that we interviewed there, according to them, the worst conditions among the foreign investors. What happened a few months after we were there is that Michael Sata, today Zambia's president, won the elections on a very anti-Chinese uh, speech. And he got most of, of the votes from this copper belt, uh, copper belt area where the Chinese is investing more in the country. I'm just finishing up just to give you a brief um, taste of who we are. We've, born, we've been both uh, journalists in China for uh, 15 years between the two of us. So we believe we have a very good understanding of, of how China is domestically, which has been a key factor to understand how is China's international expansion. And I think in, the, in our book, although it's a book full of human stories, because we give, uh, as I said, it's a, this is a book about uh, human lives and human stories, uh, there are also over 400 footnotes in which we explain ma many things in depth. And I think this previous knowledge on China has been key. Hopefully, uh, you have a nice overview of, of what's, uh, what, our what our project was about. But please let me finish with one quote that is also in the book and that I think that explains very well um, China's strategy. And this is a quote by Deng Xiaoping in 1990. So over 20 years, I mean more than 20 years ago, this quote I think is still in place today. He said, observe and analyze calmly, secure our position, tackle changes patiently, hide our abilities, and wait for the right moment, keep a low profile, never claim leadership, carry out business modestly. Thank you, and now we go for, for the video.
turn off the light. The uh, key cause, uh, the underlying and obvious cause of this uh, timber business activity in Russia 
in Russian forest is Chinese unlimited demand of timber. It's an uh, impact uh, to Indonesian forest and uh, Siberian forest equally. People became unemployed. Uh, they usually get to, uh, together in a group and go to the forest because they clearly know the Chinese uh, wholesalers of timber are here in any village. Uh, they can just, just pay cash dollars for just good, valuable logs. Actually, about uh, 10 to 12 trains uh, of timber, each consisting of 60 cars, uh, across the border from a Russian uh, Far East to Supenhe. And uh, actually, that means that it's about 3,000 cubic meters every day are coming to Supenhe train station and uh, enter Chinese timber market. Should we bring in the lights? Thank you. I would like to start again by uh, saying thank you, everyone, for being here. And of course, uh, the Penguin team and also everyone here at the LSE um, uh, for organizing this event and also our agent um, that I think she was or she is responsible for making this, this project uh, of uh, research really global. Um, I would probably be a, a bit less um, scholar than Juan Pablo. Um, I think everyone here realized that we are journalists, we are not scholars, so our way of uh, working probably is a bit different from what uh, people here is used to do. Um, but I think that um, at the end, what we've done and what people like us journalists do, even if sometimes it's controversial, and I expect to have a, a few, um, a, bit, a big debate actually here today, I think it's, it's valuable. Um, I would try to, to, to sum up um, and explain a few examples, uh, case studies actually of what we've been looking at, uh, but to sum up some of the conclusions of, of, of the book. Um, the first thing I would like just to go very quick um, over this, I think it's important. What, why is the Chinese um, model when we are talking about this? Um, I'm now focus, focusing on, on what some people call China Inc. Or, or state capitalism or red capitalism or I don't know how many other names uh, it has. But basically what, what we've been looking at in this book 
um, one thing is what one explain is all those individuals, I, I, I hope you, you enjoyed the pictures and, and videos, that we have been following uh, in some of the most difficult places in the world, and they, that I have to say, and I want to say it right now, uh, that they are doing things uh, absolutely great, and they, are, they all have all our admiration for what they are doing. We already witnessed this in China, and we have again witnessed um, this, uh, this thing abroad. But I would like to go on, on this uh, China in think or state capitalism. Um, I assume most of you are familiar with this, but China is doing things a bit different than the other countries, and, and this is because of its uh, structure. Mainly we're having this huge and, and, and very, I think, interesting state-owned companies that are going abroad in this Go Global strategy. And, and they are doing it in a way that is quite different from uh, uh, multinational companies, private Western companies. They are going global and they are going abroad thanks to the, um, mainly the policy banks, uh, the two main Chinese policy banks, the Chinese Development Bank and also the Chinese Exim Bank, that as you know, um, they are directly controlled by the State Council and they are uh, giving loans under the market rate, so they are doing it uh, most of the time for political reasons. This is, in a way, if you allow me to put it in a very journalistic terms, this is a, a political weapon or financial political weapon of, of China. So we're having these state-owned companies working very closely with the Chinese policy banks, and then we are also, of course, having the Chinese, uh, I would say, brilliant diplomacy working very closely with these two uh, state um, um, Chinese uh, companies and, and banks. And then we are having, of course, and I think this is very important because in a way, China is quite unique. They are using uh, their own labor, and in some places, this is really making a difference. So I, I would like to start by talking, we are on, I'm going to talk about three points. Um, the first one is this, the, the efficacy of this uh, Chinese model. Is it really succeeding, uh, the, the Chinese state-owned companies, where they are going? Are they really succeeding um, in this model? I would say... In general terms, yes, and, and I would say yes because they have actually um, used um, something that I believe they learned from the Japanese when they went to China. They are proposing those countries uh, infrastructure for um, 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 resources deal. Basically, those companies, they are bringing their labor, technology, and bringing their financing, and they are proposing uh, the recipient countries to build a road, a hospital, or a bunch of things in exchange to get access to some of those resources. Copper, oil, gas, wood, even um, food we, we have witnessed in places like in Argentina. So this is, this is being um, very successful, I would say. In some of the countries we have visited, this is a, a, a game changer. For instance, in, in, in Meroe Dam, it's one of the biggest um, 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 hydroelectric projects of, of China in, in Africa and, and is located 350 kilometers north. We've seen some of the pictures of this huge dam um, up north uh, from Hartum in the Nile River. And, and this project uh, that has already uh, been accomplished would never be in place uh, without China, mainly because the financing. China was willing to finance something that the World Bank was unwilling to do because of social and environmental impact. And also, they were able to do such a huge project because of the Chinese labor. We've been told, we've, I believe we've been one of the very few foreign journalists to uh, travel on field and see what's going on on field. 
and we've been told that uh, over 2,000 Chinese workers took part on, on this project. The second uh, example I would like to, to mention when we are talking about the magnitude of the Chinese projects is in Turkmenistan. I, I, I believe you know that Turkmenistan is one of the most isolated countries uh, in the world. Uh, it's also one of the most corrupted um, um, governments in Central Asia. And we were able to visit uh, a very isolated region uh, in the north of Turkmenistan, in, in, in the middle of, the de of a desert between Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, and we <coughs> actually witnessed how one of the biggest uh, Chinese uh, gas camps uh, was working. We've been uh, looking at, at, at this project. China had to grant 8 billion uh, loans to Turkmenistan in order to get access to those resources, and China became uh, the first foreign country in being able to exploit onshore gas fields in Turkmenistan. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with, with, with this uh, region uh, that has been under the influence of the former Soviet Union, but I don't know if you realize how, um, what does really mean. China has been the very first country to be able to exploit those resources, and is also the very first country uh, in which uh, Turkmenistan is being able to sell its gas apart from Moscow, from Russia, sorry. From now, Turkmenistan only could sell gas to Russia, and now because China has built this gas line, um, and, and this gas camp, sorry, and also a gas line of 7,000 kilometers that is linking this gas line to the kitchens of Shanghai, now Turkmenistan can sell, has another option. So this is why I'm talking about um, uh, the magnitude. China is, of course, these Chinese state-owned companies, uh, talking about efficacy again, is willing to take risk, and they are taking decisions very rapid. I think this is also a key issue when, when we are looking from a local, from a global perspective. Uh, we are seeing, as one mentioned before, Venezuela having over 40 billion uh, U.S. dollars uh, loans coming from China, and thanks to this, China uh, or Chinese state-owned oil companies were able actually to get access to the hugest, to the biggest oil deposits in the world in the Orinoco Belt, as I'm sure you know. But this speedy this deals, this, this way of, of, of uh, these Chinese state-owned companies to operate also is uh, raising questions because we could look, for instance, at what have happened in the north of Africa or very specifically at what had happened in Libya. When the uh, regime change happened in Libya, 18 Chinese companies, sorry, 15 Chinese companies were uh, undercarrying projects over there uh, for a value of 18 billion US dollars. Well, what happened after, or what's going to happen uh, after this uh, change of regime? Chinese companies are going to be able to get back this money, are going to be able, in a new political environment and social environment, are going to be able to um, exploit those resources and uh, finish those projects. I think this, this is important to, to think about this. The second thing I will, I will talk is about the fairness of, of this Chinese model. Um, I would like to underline that sometimes statistics are a bit tricky because we could argue that China, in terms of investment, is not such a huge player in Africa. If I'm not mistaken, it's just over 4% of uh, foreign investment going to Africa uh, is coming from China. But we don't have to miss uh, the point that China is a big, big uh, lender, and this is also something to take in consideration. But in places like in Latin America, and I think uh, from a Spanish perspective, it's very interesting to, to see this, China became very quickly 
the third biggest uh, foreign investor after the U.S. and the Netherlands. So things are going uh, very, very quick. Talking about fairness, we, we found out, looking at a few of those, um, I would say, very um, secretive contracts between China and the recipient countries, that most of those contracts, even if they are commercial or private between companies uh, from China and companies from the recipient countries, they usually are uh, tied to the exploration or the exploitation of natural resources. And this is raising lots of concerns in some uh, countries, like in Venezuela, in which some people told us, and when I say some people, I'm talking about two former uh, CEOs of the biggest uh, oil company in Venezuela, uh, PDVSA, that in a way they have the perception that, they, um, that China uh, is um, pushing Venezuela or pushing uh, Chavez regime to uh, mortgage the national wealth, what before was never on the agenda, and that was to exchange the oil for infrastructure. Now <coughs> it's on the agenda uh, thanks to China. The second thing I, I think it's important, and, and on this uh, I'm afraid it's very difficult to, to get a statistics, but the anecdotal evidence we got by going to all those projects and, and countries is that those loans uh, that China is giving are most of the time tied to the use of uh, Chinese labor. And, and this is a key thing because despite the official rhetoric that uh, China has been using or, or Beijing has been using, that in some of the countries like Angola you don't find the human capital, you don't find, for instance, uh, engineers to build the roads, so you need to bring them from China. We also witness other situations um, in, I would say, in, in Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia, in which you see Chinese non-skilled workers being uh, employed by Chinese state-owned companies abroad, and being, uh, actually, was quite surprising to, to see that they are being paid two or three times what the local workers are paid. So you can imagine that some of those workers, uh, local workers, are not very happy with, with this situation, and the unions are not happy uh, neither. I would like now to elaborate a little bit more, and then we'll go to the last point, uh, on one very interesting deal uh, that happened in 2008 between um, China and the Democratic Republic of, of Congo. I'm sure you know, um, unfortunately, the DRC is one of the poor, poorest and uh, most undeveloped and probably one of the most corrupt countries in, in this region of, of Africa. And um, we were looking very closely at this deal that China proposed in 2008 that basically was a $9 billion deal in which China was uh, giving the financing, was bringing the companies, bringing the labor and the technology to build all kinds of infrastructures. And in exchange of that, they were going to exploit the uh, copper and cobalt reserves uh, located in the southeast uh, part of, um, of uh, the DRC, in the region nearby Lubumbashi. What we, what we found is that, the, as Juan was saying before, the headline was actually of the deal was actually absolutely incredible because you had China engaging one of the countries that the uh, West was unwilling to engage and was very uh, slow actually taking uh, decisions in terms of investment and aid. But when we were looking at the contracts and we were, we were looking at the amendments, then we realized that what was supposed to be the deal of the century for DRC was actually the deal of the century for China. 
you had China investing six billion US dollars, and the investment return of, of, of this six billion US dollar has been um, estimated by experts from 40 to 120 billion US dollars in natural resources. You also had um, China or Chinese state-owned companies being the main player in all decision uh, in all in all the sectors from this deal. Let me elaborate. You had Chinese state-owned companies who were financing, who were building the mines, exploiting the mines, and you had also those these very same companies who were the ones who were buying the minerals. So at the end of the day, the Chinese company was the one who was putting the price, or is the one who is putting the price for those minerals. So it raised, of course, concerns about checks and balance, and also about if Congo is having the best deal for those resources. I will just um, end, so we, I will leave the, the voice to, to the floor. About the third, um, the third thing, the third uh, conclusion is about social and, and environmental uh, um, impact. And in a way, I believe this is, in my case, I've been living in China for six years already, and I've witnessed this in China, everywhere in China, and I think abroad as well. Uh, China's Chinese model, despite being very successful, is also very challenging to the rest of, uh, of the developing world. Why I say this? Because when you are looking at uh, Chinese state-owned companies operating abroad, there is no real incentive for them to operate um, in an environment in which the people, actually the people, uh, is really benefiting. Let me, let me elaborate. We, we've witnessed, uh, for instance, Chinese state-owned companies in Zambia or in Peru paying the lowest salaries, and even if they are within the law, and we could discuss a lot about this, you, w w the, the, the people working for them, and that they should be the ones who are very vocal about how good is this in investment and this um, job opportunities they're having, they are very angry. They are very angry. I think this is, this is very important and probably is one of the um, strong points of our book and is that we have tried to see and feel going to the very specific place where things are happening if what the statistics are saying is true or is accurate or not. And sometimes we were surprised, even ourselves, to realize that people, despite the figures, they are not, they are not happy. I would also like to, to uh, point out um, that some of the state-owned companies, uh, if you compare with the other foreign players and even at local level, they are having the lowest safety standards. This is happening in Peru, in Zambia, and Burma. Some of them, uh, the sta Chinese state-owned companies, are asking tax holidays to those countries. So you, I think it's, it's very important also to understand what is the benefit that the states are, are having. And you see also... Um, I would say, a PR problem from those companies. They are um, not very uh, used to engage in a dialogue with the civil societies from those uh, uh, regions or countries that I believe this very simple act of sitting down with someone from the NGOs and getting advices, by refusing this, I believe that uh, China is, or, or the Chinese state-owned companies are uh, making uh, or are incurring in a, in a, in a big problem of public relations, it would be much easier for them. To end, I, I would say that uh, what we have um, witnessed uh, in all those trips is uh, the limits uh, from, from a good and a bad perspective 
of um, the lack of checks and balances that we believe there are still in uh, place in China. I'm talking about rule of law, I'm talking about the free media, I'm talking about the civil society, and I'm talking about a multi-party system in which you can, uh, as the English, I think, expression is very well says, check and balance one power with, with another. Thank you very much.